Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And this is Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. Today's episode is a part two of one that we, of a conversation that we had last time together about who Jesus is, the identity of who Jesus is. Last time we talked about the creed, we've, uh, we talked about Jesus fulfilling scripture. Today, however, we want to address the question of who Jesus is right now. How does the being of Jesus intersect my life and the life of the church, the life of Christians, the people that say that they identify with Jesus? Because honestly, that's really the question that is the heart of Christianity. Who is Jesus for right now? Because at the heart of Christianity is this idea that the resurrected Christ is living, is seated at the right hand of God, and is still by virtue of prayer and intercession miraculous works still involved in the world and so uh, someone asked the question what you know what's the evidence of that um and so this is what we want to talk about today who jesus is to us now and who he is to the christian community now and if he's the reference point who we're supposed to be emulating it would be a really important question i heard a irish philosopher peter rollins tell a parable one time and in the parable he you and your friends uh, are at the pearly gates and St. Peter is there to greet you. And uh, who knows where that ideology or thought even came from. It's like the beginning of every joke about heaven. So he's there and uh, he looks at you and says, hey, you've lived the life that you were supposed to live. You believed in Jesus. You get to come in to heaven. And, um, and, And with an inquisitive look, you look back at your friends and you say, what about them? And St. Peter looks at you and says, well, you know, they are terrible people and, and, and so they don't get to come in. And then as he tells the parable, he gives the image that you're about ready to step into the gates. And then you remember once again, your reference point, Jesus, who, as St. Paul beautifully says, left a perfect place to come down and didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant. You remember that that, the, the, the God who came and was friends with tax collectors and sinners and thieves and and prostitutes and people committing adultery, you remember that that is the reference point for how you are supposed to model your life. And so before you step in, you look at Peter and you say, you know what? I'm just going to stay with them. That I think that that's what I'm supposed to do. And then he ends the parable by saying that Peter has a huge smile come across his face because at last somebody understands who Jesus was and is really trying to be like him. This parable strikes me as brilliant for a couple of reasons. The the first one I want to hit on is really in Christianity, the quintessence of faith for us has been this idea that Jesus saves me for the afterlife. Yeah. That if I believe in Jesus, then when I die, I get to receive all of the benefits of that afterlife, which really is... um not an idea that we get from Jesus. He doesn't teach us that anywhere, except for in John 14, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may also be. But he doesn't spend his earthly ministry telling people their just desserts for believing in me are going to be that you get to come to heaven and enjoy a blissful existence. This was the idea of the middle-aged church, however, when they were trying to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica, selling indulgences, 
And what's interesting to me is that Martin Luther started the Protestant revolt, the Peasants' Revolt, the Protestant Reformation, um, railing against this idea that people's souls could be bought for a price and released from hell so that they could go to heaven. But the Protestant church 500 years later is still in some ways preaching a version of that Catholic story that was debunked, that Martin Luther debunked in the Protestant Reformation, this idea that salvation is all about what happens when we die. Because that's not the heart of Christianity and it's never it's it's not supposed to be the heart of Christianity. And the question that we're asking today, how does Jesus affect the community now? If your idea of salvation, if your idea of what Jesus does for you is that he saves you when you die, I think you have a twisted and very limited perspective of what Christianity actually is and what Jesus actually came to do. I think that as I think about our particular history and our tribe, and maybe I can just even speak just for myself, um, I talked about this to our church a lot, is that we in the Nazarene church rejected liturgy. We rejected Christian calendar. And a lot of times what would happen is we would come to church on Palm Sunday and then we'd come to church on Resurrection Sunday without ever journeying to the cross and understanding that this this was the the point and the life when Jesus says, you got to take up your cross and follow me. And so we jumped from a Hosanna to a resurrection and we never made the the honest journey of getting of the suffering and the pain and getting to the cross. And so liturgically and formationally in our history or in my history, we never dealt with what did Jesus come to do? And if he is the reference point, if that's who he was and what he was about and that, that we have to truly understand, once again, what it means to even take up our cross and follow after him, then if we never make that journey spiritually, personally, as a community, so that it can transform us, and we jump straight from Palm Sunday, where Jesus is celebrated, to Resurrection Sunday, where he's celebrated, then it could seem that this life is about all the things that I'm going to get, rather than understanding, once again, that God left all of that and made himself a human so that he could reach those that that didn't find in them and in their their particular situation in life any hope, any thought of that's going to get better than this, any thought of somebody loves me, somebody sees me where I I currently live and exist. And so I think we did a poor job as Nazarenes in our tradition. Now, not all. I'm probably making a huge generalization, um, but just even the way we formed our people didn't lend itself to me then taking up my cross and journeying with those who maybe in our society doesn't have a voice. The other part of the parable that I think is brilliant is it really the the ethics of the individual choosing to be with one's friends. Yeah. And the idea, the illusion of um, what I think it's John, he opens his gospel by talking about Jesus coming to that which was his own. And this idea that, that God came to us, even though we rejected him, even though we scorned him, even though we crucified him, he came to us. And in my experience of Christianity, Christianity can be a um, religion where we we care a lot about how we think. It becomes religion, Christianity becomes all about what we think. And so what happens 
what happens is we, t- we teach in our preaching and our children's curriculum, we try to teach people to think correctly about theology, about ideology, about philosophy. Think correctly. That's kind of the bottom line of Christian education. Well, then we don't know how to interact in the world because we go out and we meet people who don't think the way we do. And all that we know to say to them is, whoa, 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 you don't think correctly. You don't act correctly. You don't understand correctly. We've got to get you to think correctly because then you're going to start acting correctly. And the fact of the matter is we don't we don't see Jesus in the gospel accounts. I mean, we, we have four. We've got four perspectives on what Jesus was doing when he was here on earth, uh, at least that are canonical. And we don't find Jesus in those gospel accounts going around to people and trying to tell them to that that he was the Messiah or that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that they needed to confess him and believe in him. And if they confessed him and believed in him, then everything would change. What he did do is he went and he walked amongst people. He got to know them. He healed them. Uh, the, what I love about the story of Zacchaeus, it's once, it's once, it's once Jesus is in Zacchaeus's house yeah. that really the conversations of transformation take place. But he, they didn't just stand on the street and throw insults at each other. Jesus says, oh man, you're the, you're the tax collector. You're the guy everybody in town hates. Can I come to your place for dinner? I mean, that's really, that's radical ethics, but it's not the ethics that we see repeated in the church very often because so many of us see the tax collector and we think to ourselves, oh man, if there's anybody that doesn't have the right ideology and doesn't think correctly, it's him. I'm definitely not going to take my kids over to his place for dinner. (laughs) Yeah, his kids are probably terrible. Um, (laughs) I think that as we see Jesus, when he does, I think one time he does talk about the end it's interesting the people and how he true chooses to frame that understanding. Cause when he talks about the end and the people that, that get to hear, well done, that good and faithful servant has nothing. So Matthew, to, Matthew 25, Matthew right? 25. That's correct. Has nothing to do with what they believe has nothing to do with, with having the right thought process as much as it has, has everything to do with what type of life did you live? And if, if once again, Jesus is the example it seems to be that the people that are welcomed in are the people who gave people thirsty people water and who gave hungry people food and who gave naked people clothes and who visited the people in jail and prison. And But what I love about that that story is the people look and say, when? They weren't, they weren't trying to get anything in the afterlife. They were just trying to be all that God had called them to be. They were just trying to be faithful to who they thought God had called them to be. They weren't doing it for some prize at the end, you know, and, and and I'm not saying this is good, bad, or indifferent, but a lot of times when we'll do something in our Christian walk that's really difficult, the phrase that sometimes follows is, well, that'll be another jewel in my crown. Yeah. Or, <laughs> and so we have this, but when the disciples are welcomed in, they're like, when? Like, we, we weren't doing this for any anything other than this is who we thought you had called us well, they, to Well, they argue with Jesus in the parable. They say, oh, man. You must be mistaken because we never saw you hunger, thirsty. Like we did not. They say we did not do that, which you're telling us that we did. Yeah. They completely argue with them. But they're almost dumbfounded once again, because their, their motive was not what they were going to get. Their motive was, this is who we believe God is calling us to be. And whether we get anything in the end or not, like that's, that's inconsequential to us being the people that God has called us to be. And so I love the question, like when, when did we... When did we do this? We were just 
we were just living. We were just giving thirsty people water and and hungry people food because we think that that's what you would do potentially if you were here. Well, another troubling story that Jesus tells about Hades or hell or the afterlife is the story about um, Lazarus and the rich man. Yeah. And Jesus, the, or I think it's the, the rich man calls out from Hades, uh, won't you um, send the prof- Moses or the prophets to my brothers um, so that they might repent so that they don't have to come to this place? And Jesus narrating the parable says, even if Moses or the prophets were to come to them, they would not repent. They have the Mo- they have Moses and the prophets in the in the holy text, and they refuse to listen to them. Them seeing a miraculous sign, they would just dismiss that as well. I think he even says, even if they see a man raised from the dead, yeah, which is this allusion to I'm going to be in the tomb, I'm going to raise from the dead, and they're still not going to. Nobody's going to believe that. Either. <laughs> Nobody's going to believe that either. Which which makes me think of the early church, and once again, I think. I think they were just asking the question after they had seen Jesus is like, now what? Now what do we do? And we get this great line, I think in Acts chapter one, verse six or seven, where where they look at Jesus and they say, Oh, so now are you gonna set up this earthly kingdom? Now is 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 it the time? And and once again, just totally missing, almost trying to once again now put the resurrected Jesus into their paradigm rather than surrendering what they thought this kingdom was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like to what Jesus had been trying to tell them the whole time. We all have different ideas about what the kingdom of God looks like or what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And for the sake of this episode, I'm just thinking a lot about what are the evidences for me that I'm so confident that Jesus is who he says he is. And when I look back on my life, it's really in the, community of believers that I have found evidence that there really is a risen Christ that's changing lives that has changed my life. As a young kid, I was not very popular at school. Um, I was, there was nothing desirable about me. I was a chunky, obnoxious kid. I really was having a hard time finding my place. But church was always this place where people would speak life into me in a very different way than kids at school or teachers in the secular world would. I found real existential, radical hope for my own life and future in the church in a way that I didn't anywhere else. Um, When I went to college, I went to a Christian university. I had had a coach all through high school that had told me that I was dumb. And my grades reflected it. I just never thought I had much of a brain. I didn't act like I did um, in an academic setting. I got to college and there was this one professor I had who sat me down in his office toward the end of my undergraduate degree. And he said to me, you know what, Jonathan? You've got a great mind. I'll I'll never forget that Hmm. because it was the first time in my life that I had ever considered that possibility. Yeah. And we read the miracles and the stories of Jesus after they happened and people write down, you know, what what happened in their, you know, first century understanding of what was going on in reality. Jesus performed a miracle of that day for me in college. He gave me a mind. Yeah. He gave me a new mind. That's cool. I'm 
I've, I now have earned two master's degrees, which would have never been possible before somebody in the church told me, you have a great mind. Yeah. Because the world, they didn't give me that. Um, I don't know who I would be. I don't know how alone I would be. I don't know if I would still be alive. I don't know how depressed my life would be, how dark it would be, if it weren't for mentors in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, years where people at school were ridiculing me, telling me that I was valueless. People in the church told me, you have value and God has a plan for your life. You may not have any hope for your life, but God has hope for you. The evidence to me that there is a resurrected Christ at work, honestly, I find in the church now as someone who works in the church, I have the opportunity to be an extension of Christ's hands and feet in a very practical way, paying people's bills, helping miracles happen in the name of Jesus for poor and impoverished people in our community. And it's amazing. It's amazing to experience these people who thought before coming into contact with the church, with the people of Jesus, that their situation was completely hopeless, that they could have an alternative reality. I've found in my own life, and I continue to see in the lives of others, that Jesus and Christ's body, Jesus via Christ's body, Jesus through the church, changes reality for people in a way that I just, I just don't see in other institutions. I mean, for, in other institutions, you have, to, you have to provide some merit or talent to be valued in them. So like in sports communities, if you're a great athlete, I mean, you listen to these people, you know, who have the Heisman, Heisman, where they win the Heisman. They always like thank their coaches and stuff. Well, the reason that their coaches were pouring into them is not because they were a nobody. It's because they were talented. Yeah. Like they had something to offer. And so they pulled that out of them. But when you're not that guy, when you're the guy that has no talent, when you have nothing to offer the world, like me as a kid, when you have absolutely, when you come from a family that's not wealthy, that's not connected, you know, that just has nothing going for them. When that kid becomes, becomes someone who earns two master's degrees, who, who becomes someone who in the world is, um, is active and is positive and is, um, is giving hope to others, that's a miracle. And that to me is evidence of Christ still guiding reality, at least in the church, at least in his body. Yeah, I have a story of, I think, another way that I know that Christ is resurrected and that I see it practically. Uh, I grew up in a really small church in northwest Georgia, like the Bible Belt, the Dirty South. I mean, just whatever adjective you want to throw in there is probably true. Um, Ladies in my, old ladies in my church had hair in a bun, wore dresses only, no pants, um, no TV in the house, didn't go bowling or skating or movies, no way. Uh, and this was, this was, and there was several of these old ladies and I'll never forget. Uh, so one of the, the older ladies had a daughter and when she was in high school, she wanted to be in the band. Well, to be in the band, you had to wear pants and the mother did not allow her daughter to be in the high school marching band because the band uniform was not a skirt. It was pants. Brutal. Brutal. Legalistic to the core. I, I'll never forget. I think I was a teenager. And on a Wednesday night, we still did church on Wednesday night. And um, she stood up and and started talking. And she said, you know what? Um, the other night, I, I like God spoke to me and I felt really convicted. And this is years after. And she said... 
you know, I put something on my daughter. And then she said words I'll never forget. She goes, and I was wrong. I was wrong. And I knew I'd need to apologize to everybody in the church if I ever put anything on you that wasn't actually God-centered. Um, and she said I had to call my daughter, who's not a part of the church, wants nothing to do with the church because of some of the roles and things that were forced on her and some of the things that I didn't allow her to be a part of because we were Christian. And that was the the whole reason that I didn't allow her to be a part of these things. And she said, God changed my heart. And I realized that I wasn't correct. Now, for God to still to speak to a 70, 80 year old lady, a lot of times people like, well, I've already passed, you know, I've, I've given my time. I'm just going to ride into the sunset and coast on into heaven for her to stand up and admit that publicly um, I think only God can do stuff like that. Usually people, like I said, once they get to a certain age, they they feel like they're beyond or they um, kind of check out. Uh, and, and for her to say, like, I was wrong and, and I didn't handle this the right way. And God has spoken to my spirit and and called me to something bigger and, um, and different than, than I thought who he was back in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. And to me, as an evidence that that only God could have changed that heart. Um, there's another story in our church uh, that we had a guy who was coming to our church, and he was on the sex offender list. And um, so, you know, we met with him and talked with him and, and kind of gave him some some parameters of things he could do, and we still wanted him to be a part of the church. And... Um, well, he didn't do this in our church, but he he reoffended, and you know it's public knowledge. It's for out there for everybody to hear sure. and to see. And so he's in jail. Um, so we had to address this on a Sunday morning in church and say, "We know you're going to see this. We know this has happened." Um, but we and we were just trying to be as vulnerable. Like we we're not sure how to respond, other than we have to be church for this guy. If we kick him to the side, then we're no different than any other group in in our in our culture. And uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and it was just amazing the response of, of our church. And I said, it, it'll look different. You know, he probably won't be here when kids are here or teens are here, but it doesn't mean we're not going to be church for this guy. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I was talking to this older gentleman who usually stands in the back and he's like, what is this? What's going on? And and so the, the board member was kind of telling him and this older gentleman says, yeah, but we're not kicking him out, right? Like, like we... We've got to be church for this. Like you don't kick people out of the church, and 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 it just hit me like even this older gentleman was saying, "No, this is this is exactly the people that we are to be for as the church." If Jesus once again is the example, and what a great representation of a mind saying, "No, Jesus rose from the dead." There's still hope for this guy, and if we give up on him like everybody else, then what path is he going to go down? But we have to figure out. We are his church. Like this is his church, and 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 we're not going to stop being his church just because he has done something or been accused of something that 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 we definitely don't agree with and definitely don't condone and definitely don't promote. Um, and so for me, he was a sign that Jesus has risen from the dead. If God can take a heart and say, "No, we're going to choose to enter into this as the resurrection, as hope for all people, and we're not going to back down." In the book of John, Jesus tells his disciples to look forward to the day when he leaves them because he's going to be sending them the Holy Spirit. 
And we uh, Christians understand that the activity of God in the world is done through the Holy Spirit, this member of the Trinity, this um, essential component of God's very nature and being. And it is just amazing to me when the Holy Spirit speaks to someone like this elderly lady in your story, where they come to a realization that they would not have come to on their own. Yeah. Where it, where it's like, it's like God himself speaks to someone and they, they become, they repent, they confess. They say, oh man, I, I was wrong. I mean, that is such a countercultural um, posture to say I'm wrong. Yeah. All that we're taught in society is strap yourself in and just stand up for something. But Christians really guided by the Holy Spirit, we're people that can look at a situation and say humbly, man, I was wrong. We see this especially in the political realm when people get crucified for having one opinion. And then if they learn new information or get different stats or whatever the case may be, and they change their position, even if it's ever so slightly, we call them floppers and we call them. Yeah. And so we have even in our culture, this built in understanding that you can't, if you change your mind, then you're weak. If you somehow grow as a person and have a different perspective on a topic, that's somehow weakness. And it's not celebrated. It's not, it's not thought of and looked at like, man, that's that's cool. He's still learning. He's still trying to figure out where he stands on certain topics or issues. And maybe he has a better perspective because of a conversation or more information or, or God forbid, the Holy Spirit speak to some of our politicians and change their perspective on issues that maybe they once had before. And now understanding who Jesus might be a little bit better has a different perspective on well, it. Back to the book of John. This is exactly the thesis in Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. Yeah. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, "What's I can tell, I can tell that you have come from God. He's humble enough and he's, he's looking at the situation. He's like, you know, Jesus, you're really ticking off all of the religious elite. I'm one of them, but I'm watching you. I'm seeing what you're doing. And I can tell that you have authority. So what's the deal? And how do I get in? And Nicodemus is sort of asking Jesus for the secret handshake, you know. And Jesus says, you know, the spirit of God, the spirit is like the wind that blows wherever it pleases. And if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how in the world can I be born again into my... When I'm old, how do I get back into my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, it's an analogy, dude. <laughs> yeah, a little comic relief. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. John 3. <laughs> He's like, come on, man. He says, he says, you know, but the, the evidence is that you're born of um, water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Holy Spirit of God that birthed creation mm. through which God spoke all things into being rebirths us spiritually. And if you, if you have not been reborn in any of your thoughts or any of your habits or any of your ways recently, when you are old, you should be, you should be asking the question, am I a part of God's kingdom? Am, is my life evidence of the risen Christ? Because Jesus tells us that the spirit comes to make us reborn, 
to give us new life. And he doesn't, and he doesn't say to Nicodemus, be reborn just once. I think that's, that's another really important thing. We are really fixated in an in um, Western Christianity on this idea of once saved, always saved, which is such a non-biblical idea. There's some biblical precedents for it. People have kind of cherry-picked larger passages of scripture to make a case for it. But Christianity following Jesus is not about making a decision once to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Following Jesus is a way of life that says everything on my, in my life is on the table. And that I'm going to I'm going to surrender to Jesus daily as different things happen because we're going to change. Things change. The only constant is change. And in every desperate situation, I desperately need the direction of Jesus and I need to be reborn. And that is evidence of the Holy Spirit, of the presence of the resurrected Christ in someone's life. Is if they are if they have that sort of posture toward the, the world of being reborn. Can we push it a little further and just talk to our holiness people that it's not once sanctified, always sanctified either. And that's exactly right. <laughs> that we've had this this thought of I've I've been sanctified and so I'm good for the rest of my life. And once again, Peter seems to always be a great example for just about everything, but he 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 preaches at Pentecost and like three thousand people are saved. Now most of us would be like, Man, Peter's arrived. I mean, that is that is good. Like, and yet we get in Acts chapter 10, I believe, when we talked about it, even in the last episode about the sheet that falls down and the vision that this guy who preached and had a huge success of 3,000 people being saved is still learning and growing about what it means to follow after this Jesus and that we can't, we can't say anything that God has created is, is unclean, that all the things. And, and so Peter had to decide oh, now I've got to go to the centurion's house. And it's funny because when he walks in the house, he looks at them and he's like, you understand that for a Jew to walk into a Gentile's house is against the law. And here I am standing in your house. But I'm not sure that would have even happened had Peter, obviously the the, the sheet coming down was God saying, hey, there's a guy coming. And this this gospel message is not just for the Jewish people, it's for the entire world. The idea that you can be saved as a 10-year-old for the rest of your life is just absurd in the sense that as a 10 year old, you have no idea what the complexities of your life are going to be at 20. And, and a truly Christian person who gave their life to Jesus at 10 ought to at 20 be begging the Holy spirit for rebirth, yeah. for transformation, because that's what's needed. And th- this idea, this idea of just being, that Jesus came to save us in the afterlife, uh, to punch a ticket, is is just absolutely absurd. It's not New Testament theology at all. It's Protestant Western theology coming out of the Reformation, uh, and that is just that has not been helpful. And uh, I think it's um, it's the Catholic scholar Brennan Manning, the the pastor, the priest, who has that famous line that uh, the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians that acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and let him down by let him down by their lifestyle. Yeah. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And when we want to say when we as Christians who are dead set that we're right about everything go to people of the world and say I've been born again, 
they're thinking to themselves, no, no, you haven't. You're determined to be the exact same for the rest of your life. And honestly, I'm not interested in having a conversation with you because the last thing you're interested in is being reborn. <laughs> you seem to be, it's kind of like, uh, once again, it reminds me of the rich young ruler. It seems like everybody is, has this question about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey your father and mother, you know, the Ten Commandments. And the guy gets really excited. And, and Jesus says, okay. And, and I think it even says Jesus was happy. Like, he liked this guy. He says, there's one thing you lack. And I, I think Jesus was, seemed to be more interested in not just what happened at the end, but the life that this guy was living every day. And he says, these things that you have or have this hold on you, and if you're going to be free today, you got to go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy had a choice and, and he walked away sad. And once again, we hear that passage and think Jesus was trying to figure out how to get him to heaven. And I think Jesus was trying to get him to have the life that he wanted him to have right here and right now so that he could be the person that he needed him to be now. And, and, and he realized that the life that he was living was choking him, was constricting him. He, he could follow all the rules, but he probably told his daughter she couldn't be in the high school marching band either, potentially. <laughs> but, and it says he walked away sad because he had a lot of wealth and he wasn't, he didn't really want the life that Jesus wanted him to have. He wanted to add it just to have the, the fire insurance, you might say, the... The, the, the Trump card, the get-out-of-jail-free card. We do not like that story in North American Christianity, the story of the rich young ruler, because the fact of the matter is we're all the rich young ruler. Right. And if we take the story of the rich young ruler seriously, um, we're in trouble. I heard Tony Campolo speak once, and he said, uh, when I was a new Christian, I was reading the New Testament, and I read the story of the rich young ruler, and I loved it. I thought Jesus you know, was radical, and I wanted to be a part of a movement that would speak to power the way Jesus did. Then Tony Campolo said something interesting. He said, but then I went to seminary and I realized uh, that Jesus wasn't being serious with the rich young ruler. That uh, they, they taught me that that wasn't what Jesus would desire for everybody. It was just for that guy back then and that Jesus's words weren't to be taken seriously by everybody at all times. And Tony tells that story in kind of a joking and mocking way. Because if you know anything about Tony Campolo, he's a guy who lives a radical, a radically countercultural life. He is, um, he's somebody that you can't pin down. It's kind of like Jesus, because he legitimately is asking the question at all times: How do I live to be more and more like Jesus? How does Jesus reshape my reality right now? Uh, I was in a class in my undergraduate degree, and a professor told a parable about heaven. He said that uh, there was a man who had a dream and uh, that he went, he went, or I think the man had died and he, when he went to heaven and um, he, or he was in the afterlife and the guide, the guide meets him wherever one gets met in the afterlife. And he's told, I want to show you, you know, heaven and I want to show you hell. He says, well, let's go to hell first. So they go to hell and at, at as they start approaching the room, they, they smell these amazing, fantastic smells of food being cooked. And, and the, the guy who, um, who has died or is in the dream, he is thinking that the, guy must, the tour guide must be mistaken. Well, they, they open the doors of this large banquet hall. And every person, they're, they're, they're seated at a long, narrow banquet table. And every person sitting at the table has extended arms with no elbows. 
And so there's all this amazing food that's on the table, that's on the table, but no one can reach the food and get it into their own mouth. And so it's kind of this eternal situation of torment where all these people with, with no joints at their elbows can get food into their mouth and they're sitting at this banquet table. So he says, you know, now let's go, go to heaven. Well, they go not far away to a different banquet hall where they hear loud, uh, just clamoring and laughter and joyous conversation and the same smells. And they open to a very similar scene in one sense, a long table with food. And very similar in another sense, everybody at these tables, they also have no joints at their elbows. But what's happening in this scene is that the people across the table from the others are dipping their, dipping their forks into the lavish buffet and they're feeding one another across the table. And the guy says, you know, this is heaven. But it's this, this idea that, that the heavenly reality, the Jesus reality is the reality where I do not think first and foremost about myself, but I just, I just think about others where I'm so, I'm so obsessed with the well-being of the other that um, I find myself living out just a beautiful life of joy, disconcerned with my own stresses and pressures of my life. Which, which I mean, to be honest, in America, it's hard to live like that. Sure. Because we're told you got you to have, a, you gotta have a, a bank account for the kid's college, you know? It, if you want a happy life, you got to hoard some stuff, man. You got you to have enough in retirement. You can't give all your stuff away. Even the great Dave Ramsey, the Christian financial consultant, what does he say right now? He says, you got to live like no one else right now so that later you can give like no one else. Dave Ramsey does not tell people in his Christian financial ad- advice to give generously now. He says, no, you got to hoard it right now so that later you can give. I realize there's a lot of Dave Ramsey fans out there that I've just offended, <laughs> but that's not Christian advice. And Jesus would not have been a financial peace guy. He wouldn't have. Sure. He was homeless, folks. Sure. He didn't have a dime to his name. When, they, when his disciples came to ask him about paying the tax, he said, hey, go to the sea, pull a fish out. You'll find the, te- the temple tax. Let's, can, we, can we worry about something else? Yeah. I got, I got a lot more to worry about than the financial stresses of this life. Yeah. So I, I love, we really didn't know where we were going to go, but it seems like it turned into stories that we've seen in our own life about where we see the resurrection. And, and I think it's, I think it's, Church people throwing birthday parties for kids whose parents don't have enough money to throw yes. birthday parties. I think yes. it's older people still being transformed by the power of God's love. It's older people investing in younger people and saying, this is maybe what the world tells you, but this is who God thinks you are and who I think you are. And and so it's practical, everyday things where there seems to be no hope. We find that hope and transformation and healing and reconciliation and forgiveness. And, and I think that's why when we hear stories from Rwanda about these reconciliation and from during apartheid, when you have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, why it's so gripping is because it's so counter to everything else we see in the world. And I think that we think, oh, those are resurrection stories. Now, it reminds me of, once again, Peter Rollins, who there's a big big hullabaloo, and this still is, is like, what actually happened on Easter? We just came out of Easter, and did a body actually walk out of the grave, or was it more of a spiritual resurrection, or was it, was the tomb empty, but Jesus was in hell? You know, it's just all this trying to figure out, once again, what happened on Easter Sunday morning. And uh, and so they asked Peter Rollins, he was at a lecture at, co- at a college, and they said, do you deny the resurrection? Do you, do you deny the resurrection? And he makes this statement, he's like, all right, it's kind of time to come clean. 
He goes, yeah, of course I deny the resurrection. And then he goes, every time I fail to speak up for those who don't have a voice, every time I see my brother or sister who is struggling or hurting and I don't choose to try to help and relieve their pain, every time I don't, I am a part of a system that oppresses and pushes down. But he goes, but then I also affirm it. I affirm it every time, every now and again, when I do grab my brother's hand or sister's hand and say, you know what, God sees something in you and I do too. When I speak into those hopeless situations, God's grace and God's love and God's peace. And I think that as we live, as we talk, if Jesus is the example that we are to emulate our lives after, we have to not put on him what we would want, but actually try to look at him for who he was, who he said he was, who he came to be, and then say, if that's who he was, then that's who he wants me to be as well. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. 